0: Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at loe.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks.
1: From Public Radio International, it's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. New research suggests autism is largely an environmental
2: illness. What they calculated was that the risk... For autism was 38% from genetics and 58% from environment that twins share, which is really different than what everybody's been saying up until now.
1: Coming up, which chemicals in the environment to avoid to reduce the risk of autism? Also turning tides into electricity, clean energy
3: washes ashore. And it's renewable. The tides go, ebb in and flood, every day. You can set your watch by it. No, will we be 100%? Will we be able to replace all of our energy resources? No, but we're part of the answer, a big part of the answer.
1: A rising tide lifts all boats and gives clean energy a boost. But will government support for tidal power ebb or flow? We'll have those stories and more this week on Living on Earth.
4: Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm.
1: From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency says Americans can soon breathe easier because it's making the good neighbor rule tougher. And that decision is sure to make enemies out of the utilities that burn coal. The good neighbor rule is shorthand for the EPA's cross-state air pollution rule, which is a mouthful designed to reduce a lungful of toxic chemicals that drift downwind from coal-fired power plants. Joining me to discuss the implications of the new rule is Janice Nolan, an assistant vice president of the American Lung Association. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. The cross-state air pollution uh, rule, it's been around for a while, right?
0: One version of it was... EPA did have an earlier version of this in 2005 that got tossed out by the courts in 2008. The court said, EPA, we really have to clean up these power plants. We agree with you on this. And so this rule provides a better structure and a more complete approach to dealing with the pollution from coal-fired power plants that blows across state lines that contributes to pollution problems all over the eastern U.S. So
1: how does it work?
0: The EPA figures out how much pollution in each state is coming from a state across the state line. Sometimes they're as far away as, say, Texas is from Pennsylvania. And EPA is calculating what percentage of that pollution in Pennsylvania is coming from each of those states. And they've done this through some computer modeling, through some testing and investigation, and have arrived at an assessment that can help people in Pennsylvania. Recognize that they can't deal with pollution problems coming from Texas. They have to have the help of EPA so that they can sort through the problem.
1: Now, this does not affect all states. It's only, what, 27 states, as I understand it, in the East.
0: Right. It's the Eastern U.S., the Midwest, Northeast, Southeast. Parts of places where the state lines are pretty close together, where pollution can easily blow from some of these big sources throughout the country into other parts of the country. So that's one of the reasons it's the good neighbor rule. It's a rule that actually will help people to be able to breathe easier downwind for the first time, really.
1: So specifically, what pollutants are we talking about?
0: The main ones we're looking at are two of the most widespread in the country. Ozone, which is often called smog, and particle pollution, which is frequently known as soot. Particle pollution are tiny bits of things that are actually so small that they can pass through the body's natural defenses. Ozone is a highly irritating gas, and when you inhale it, it can make the lungs have like a sunburn effect.
1: And these new rules by the EPA would dramatically cut those, right?
0: Absolutely. These new rules would help reduce sulfur dioxide by 73 percent from levels that existed in 2005. For nitrogen oxide, they're cutting that by about 54 percent. So it's a significant amount of reduction to be able to provide healthier air for all of us. So what
1: are the health benefits of this new rule?
0: Well, the first one is we save lives. Uh, EPA estimates that by 2014, we will have 34,000 fewer deaths each year thanks to having this rule put in place. By that same year, we'll have about 19,000 fewer heart attacks. Uh, We'll have 400,000 fewer asthma attacks. These are real health improvements that we'll be able to see. People don't always realize that air pollution causes people to die, that it causes heart attacks, causes asthma attacks. But we have plenty of evidence that shows that. And the calculations show that this will have a terrific public health benefit.
1: But it's not like there's a death certificate that says killed by coal power plant. You know, how do you really know how many deaths and illnesses are caused by them?
0: You're right. People don't think when they have a heart attack that it's related. But we're able to do this through very large studies that are done of communities across the nation that have been tracked for a long time and be able to track this down and compare it to the air quality in that community. And by eliminating the consideration for those other things like smoking or something, we're able to see that air pollution has a real measurable impact on public health.
1: What about in terms of economic benefits? Has that been quantified?
0: Yes. And EPA is finding that the economic benefits of this rule far outweigh the costs associated with it. EPA expects that we're looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 100 times more dollars of benefits for every dollar of costs associated with this rule. So it's going to have a huge benefit.
1: Well, how much is it going to cost utilities to comply with the new EPA rule?
0: EPA is projecting that in 2014, the cost will be $800 million, and then roughly $1.6 billion each year in capital investments already underway as a result of what they're doing now. And then it'll result in $120 to $280 billion in annual benefits. So the costs, even the upfront and even the substantial annual costs, are going to be far outweighed by the annual benefits that will come in.
1: But what is industry saying? They don't like this at all.
0: It's not like they haven't known that these rules would be coming down the pike. The last time we changed the Clean Air Act was 1990. So for 21 years, they've known that they need to be cleaning up their power plants. And now we're finally putting things in place. They're going to have to follow the rules.
1: So is this a done deal now?
0: It should be. EPA has produced this as a final rule once it's published. There are a few pieces of it that are they are going back and going, okay, we've changed this a little bit, so we're having a, another opportunity for comment. And then starting in January, cleanup will be ra- happening. EPA has this authority, and hopefully they will be allowed to exercise the authority as the law requires.
1: Janice Nolan is an assistant vice president at the American Lung Association. Ms. Nolan, thank you so very much. Thank you. There are significant and exciting new findings that fundamentally alter our understanding of what causes autism. For generations, scientists thought autism was essentially a genetic disease, but there's growing evidence environmental factors may play an even larger role. The case is made in a new study of twins in the most recent issue of the Archives of General Psychiatry. To help us understand the study's complex findings, we turn to Dr. Martha Herbert. She's a professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School and an expert in the field of autism research. Dr. Herbert, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. So let's look at the methodology that the researchers use. They used, they studied uh, twins.
2: Right. Why? Because twins are in the same family, and they share at least some genes. But identical twins share all the genes, and fraternal twins don't share all the genes. They have a, maybe 50-50. So if something shows up in the identical twins, you'd say, ah, genetic.
1: If something shows up in the fraternal twins, you'd say, hmm, something else going on here. Yes, that's what people have usually said. So these researchers studied, what, about 192
2: pairs of of twins. Right. And what did they find? They found that actually there was more concordance than expected in the fraternal twins and less in the identical twins. Concordance? That means that if one is autistic, then the other is autistic. So usually it's been that 60 to 90 percent of the identical twins were both autistic, and 0 to 10 percent were both autistic if they were fraternal twins. And that led people to think that this was, by and large, a very, very strongly genetic disorder. But to have there be so much match, concordance, in the fraternal twins and not so much in the identical suggests that there's shared environment. What they calculated was that the risk for autism was 38% from genetics And 58% from environment that twins share. So it's a very low
1: number in terms of genetics and very
2: high in terms of of, uh, environmental issues. Yes, which is really different than what everybody's been saying up until now.
1: So what kind of environmental factors could we be talking
2: about? Well, there are lots of environmental factors that people have been talking about and trying to do research about. It ranges from chemicals to nutrition to exposures like to being living near a freeway. Many, many different types of factors. Are there major
1: suspects that perhaps stand out from the
2: crown? There are a number of chemicals that it's a good idea to watch out for. Bisphenol, plasticizers that make plastics moldable, flame retardants, flame retardants in baby pajamas and in bedding that were not tested for the baby urinating in the bed, which then makes the chemicals float around in the air and the baby then breathes it pesticides be really careful about spraying your house don't you know find more natural ways of avoiding pest exposure pesticides in food try to be eat organic if possible don't microwave in plastic look under your sink and clean out a lot of the products which have long lists of chemicals that you can't pronounce there's lots of ways of cleaning your house with simple products with with vinegar and water and baking soda and things which are not going to cause problems that may show up now or later.
1: There's another new study this, uh, that suggests that women who take um, antidepressants uh, while they're pregnant have a higher incidence of children with autism.
2: Right. It's about a double the risk. And it reminds me of another recent study that came out where mothers who did not take prenatal vitamins were 60% more at risk of having children with autism. But what's interesting about that is if the mother who was not taking a prenatal vitamin, also had a mutation in one of two genes that make you more vulnerable to the environment. They had up to a four and a half times increased risk of having a child with autism.
1: Now, the number of cases of autism is exploding. I think the the Centers for Disease Control says something like a 600% increase over the last two decades. It's a national
2: health crisis. Right, well, the numbers are going up. The numbers that are reported in each successive study seem to be higher. The most recent study from Korea was 1 in 38. That's a lot. That's like 3%, which is a lot for something that 15 years ago was 3 in 10,000.
1: In terms of autism spectrum disorder, um, the dramatic increase, can part of that be understood in
2: redefining it or looking for it more carefully? There have been a number of studies in the last couple of years trying to figure out whether the autism increases are real, an artifact, or a combination of both. And what it's looking like is somewhere between half to two-thirds is real, and the rest is some kind of artifact, whether we loosened up the diagnostic criteria, criteria we're diagnosing people younger, or we're, we're noticing people we never noticed before.
1: How does this research help us in, um, in what happens next in autism research?
2: I think this paper is fantastic for saying, let's pull out the stops and look at everything we possibly can environmentally. We have been putting our eggs so much in the basket of genetics. I have a dear friend uh, who's a geneticist who said, why don't you environmental people wait for a while? We'll work out the genes and then you can sort of do the trimmings. Now it's looking like this is not the trimmings. This is not the icing on the cake. It's the cake.
1: Well, Dr. Herbert, thank you so very much for coming in and helping us understand this very complex and very important topic. Great. Thank you. Dr. Martha Herbert is a professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School. Her new book, which comes out next year, is called The Autism Revolution. Just ahead, finding ways to keep parks afloat when state budgets are drowning in red ink. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Across the nation, states are trying to balance their budgets by slashing funds to schools, mental health facilities, prisons, and anti crime efforts. California goes even further. The new budget calls for closing a quarter of the state's parks. Seventy parks are slated to be shut, saving $33 million over the next two years. But state officials aren't sitting still while the budget axe falls. They're trying innovative ways to save parks financially and ecologically. Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet has our report.
5: In her leafy backyard, Sherry Boyer unfolds a map on the patio table. The map shows the beaches of the California coastline and all the rest of the 278 state parks. Boyer and her husband run a small company, Good Solutions Group, or GSG, that produces these maps, free of charge for the Parks Department. We never take a dime
6: from a park, or, and therefore a taxpayer. All of our funding comes from corporations.
5: Corporations are always trying to tap new audiences. And since Boyer had worked in marketing for Procter and Gamble, she knew that Coca-Cola's, Odwallas, and Subarus of the world would be hungry to reach park users.
6: What we see is that there's a large audience that visits parks, seven hundred and forty million visits to state parks across the country a year. So a very, very, very large audience. So these are not people who are sitting home on their couch thinking about going outdoors. They are actually outdoors. So that makes them an incredible Incredibly attractive target audience for a corporation.
5: Boyer's company now produces maps for 15 states, but has moved beyond that. They work with North Face, giving away park passes in Oregon and six other states. With Juicy Juice, they built a playground in New York. The company also turns out volunteers for work days, like one at a major Orange County surf beach in April. We did the largest
6: Earth Day cleanup that the California State Park Foundation has ever done. We had over 1,100 people out. They were community members, but also Coca-Cola and Stater Brothers employees. And we cleaned up 38,000 pounds of
5: invasive species. GSG keeps a slice of the total corporate contribution, And do the companies get buildings or benches named after them? Not really. Logos tend to be small on one corner of a plaque or map.
6: I think what we have to do is just make sure that if we do bring partners in, that we do it in a very acceptable way, and it doesn't turn into massive billboards and renaming parks.
5: Boyer's company has channeled a total of $7.7 million into parks since 2003. One of the largest has been a rehabilitation of a devastated park. And they're not alone in providing new channels for funding. Out on a wild hillside, Chaparral bursts into bloom, strong from the spring rains. Nedra Martinez pulls a knife from her pocket. She kneels down before an 18-inch pine seedling and slices the orange mesh that protected it from browsing deer. It's impossible for me to be out here and not take... But. Martinez is the district superintendent for the sweeping Cuyamaca Rancho State Park in the mountains east of San Diego. I'm very excited. You know, it's just, it's a miracle is what I think it is
6: to see all the work that we've done here come to fruition and have these
5: trees being so big that we had had to take the vexar off of them. It's just, it just makes you smile. <laughs> the last eight years, Martinez has worked amid a scene of devastation. In 2003, the hot-burning Cedar Fire ransacked this park. Only black, cindery spikes now stand where once there was a forest of incense cedar and pine.
7: The Cedar Fire was the largest fire in California's recorded history.
5: Mike Wells is a former district superintendent and fire manager.
7: It was one of the worst days of my life to see how thorough the damage had been and and to note that very little natural regeneration had taken place.
5: Wells is also a scientist, and he had research plots in the forest. They were all destroyed.
7: Just about the time that that happened, then we had another set of fires, including the Witch Fire, which I believe is the third or fourth largest fire in California history. And by the end of that sort of episode of fire, over six of the ten largest fires in California history had taken place. So completely unprecedented in our recorded history. And during that time, over half of the conifer forest in San Diego County burned. So this is a whole new world.
5: Scientists believe these frequent, hotter fires are a result of fire suppression and climate change. Wells's research told him the Coulter pines that did remain after the fire should produce new seedlings— But it wasn't happening. There weren't enough trees, and the survivors had had their seeds blistered by the fire.
7: And so um, after monitoring the park for about five years, we realized that natural recovery in this area was going to be very slow and maybe for some species not happen at all. And so we, we kind of came to the conclusion that maybe trying to recreate some patches would help to shorten the recovery time for the forest.
5: Now, even in good times, the state doesn't pay to replant after a fire. The practice is to just let things grow back. Foresters at Cuyamaca Rancho State Park wanted to try a novel ecological approach, replanting small islands of trees and hoping these would eventually reseed the park. Facing unpredictable fire seasons and the toughest economic times in memory, they turned to a nonprofit. Scott Steen works with American Forests, which funds reforestation.
8: This is a really interesting pilot project for us. In this case, nature wasn't running its course. You, you weren't seeing the regeneration that you would expect. And it's, it's an important ecosystem, and it's also a park. And it's a park that has been an important part of this region for a long time. I think a lot of people grew up coming to this park.
5: The timing for this idea was also fortunate. The state of California had recently pressed ConocoPhillips about one of its refineries that was set to increase CO2 emissions. The company agreed to pay $2.8 million toward reforestation. Those dollars were channeled through American forests, together with funds from Sherry Boyer's Good Solutions Group to fund the replanting here, 880 acres so far. But these efforts are not enough to head off the first parks closures in the history of the state of California. The Parks Department is actively looking for cities, counties, and nonprofits that might be willing to take over whole parks, but it expects many to close. Mike Wells says that will change lives.
7: You know, I, I've probably seen tens of thousands of school kids come through state parks, you know, as part of field trips, and then they come back with their parents. And, um, I think it's, you know, very important to kind of create that bond so that people appreciate the natural world and especially young people, you know, that are into their video games and, you know, they go to school, which is a completely artificial environment. And then they're. Their parents take them to dance lessons or a soccer field, which is also an artificial environment, and they never really develop that bond to the natural world. So I think that's probably the most important thing that state parks do.
5: Or won't do if tens of thousands of visitors lose access to parks near them slated to close in July 2012. For Living on Earth, I'm Ingrid Lobet in Los Angeles.
1: Hey, Ingrid, uh, stay with me for a moment, okay? Sure. Sure. Uh, About closing these parks, how does California actually do that? Can the State Parks Department just lock the gates and walk away?
5: Well, that's what the Parks Department is looking at. For some parks, they may not be able to do that. One reason would be if they've received federal funds for certain parks, they may have to keep those open some minimal time. They're looking at maybe one day a week.
1: What about people just hanging out or taking up residence in a state park that's closed?
5: Yeah, that's one interesting thing is they are actually considering leaving the parks open since, as you say, it could be more convenient for uh, homeless people or, or for criminal activity if the parks were locked. So one thing the Parks Department says it's considering is, you know, many parks have a dedicated group of park supporters. They'll often be called friends of XYZ Park, people who've been going to that park regularly for years. They could ask these groups of volunteers to keep an eye on the park and report if there's any suspicious activity, which would then become the problem of the police or the sheriff's department.
1: What about maintenance? Uh, who does the maintenance or do they just stop?
5: There wouldn't be any more maintenance. That's where a lot of the savings comes from, along with staffing. And in a few cases, these local groups might actually have the wherewithal to keep the park open and take over daily operations. But surely there won't be groups with that kind of time and money for every park, probably not even a majority, unless people really make a leap in their commitment.
1: Well, thank you very much, Ingrid. You're welcome. Ingrid Lobet is Living on Earth's West Coast Bureau Chief. dethroning the lords of water and other environmental consequences of the war in Afghanistan. But first, this note on emerging science from Stephanie
4: McPherson. Waves rolling through the ocean look completely separate from the salty air above as they crash down and sink back into the depths. But researchers at the University of Southern California have discovered that the boundary between air and water is not so cut and dried, One quarter of the water molecules sloshing around at the surface are sitting across the border separating the liquid of the ocean from the gas of the atmosphere. To test this, scientists used extremely distilled water and singled out the thinnest layer of molecules ever examined. They found that one of every four water molecules right at the air-water boundary was not all wet. Of the two hydrogen atoms in one molecule of H2O, one hovered just over the water line, free of the usual bonds that kept its underwater partner a liquid. If the molecule were a person, said one of the researchers, it would look like a swimmer waving one arm up out of the water for help. Many of the chemical reactions that happen at the water's surface help to keep our atmosphere in balance. Probing the nuances of where water meets air gives environmental chemists more precise information to work with when calculating the rates of these reactions. Next up, the team will check how salt and particle-saturated bodies of water compare to their pure water results. That's this week's Note on Emerging Science. I'm Stephanie McPherson.
1: Last month, Afghan President Hamid Karzai gave a speech and made two surprising statements. He confirmed for the first time that the U.S. was talking with the Taliban. That announcement made headlines, but largely overlooked was something else the Afghan president said. Karzai condemned coalition forces for the environmental consequences war has had on his country. Every time their planes fly, he said, they make smoke. When they drop bombs, they have chemical materials in them. Karzai also accused coalition forces of polluting Afghanistan with nuclear components, an apparent reference to depleted uranium used in munitions and armor. Our people are killed, said Karzai, but also our environment is damaged. Back in 2005, Karzai established Afghanistan's National Environmental Protection Agency, but it's still a work in progress. Gulam Malik Yar is a senior advisor to the NEPA. The phone lines to Afghanistan are poor, so he voiced over what he said.
9: The environment is not a priority for the government. It's not even included in the national strategy. Now the Afghan Environmental Protection Agency is trying to convince the government to consider the environment a vital asset. I expect that President Karzai's support will bring good changes for environmental protection in the country.
1: As the U.S. begins pulling out of Afghanistan, it leaves behind 30 million people devastated by 30 years of war. This vast country, landlocked with soaring mountains, is the sixth poorest in the world. The average life expectancy, just 44 years. Andrew Scanlon with the United Nations Environmental Program says dealing with the consequences of war will take generations and require sensitivity to the country's diverse tribal cultures.
6: It's a complex place. Um, It's a place
10: full of local stories. So everywhere you hear one story, and and, uh, it may be very different in Kunduz than it would be in Helmand or in Kabul. The tendency being to take one story that you've heard and assume that that's the national story. And it's not the case. All the local stories together do not make up a national story. They're very unique.
1: We reached Andrew Scanlon in Bamyan province, where the Taliban blew up two ancient statues of the Buddha. But it's war's effect on Afghan's ancient network of water canals called the Karez system that's of more immediate concern to Afghans. Zahid Hamdad, a senior government environmental official, says the Karez system has been critical for Afghan survival for 3,000
10: years. The tunnels are dug just beneath the ground.
11: When there are movements of these military
10: vehicles, or maybe like they are. When there are movements of military vehicles or bombs dropped, these systems are completely damaged. In my recent experiences with the Ministry of Rural Development, most of the community needs are repairs to the irrigation systems, Karez maintenance. Physical damage to the Karez water system isn't the only problem. Afghanistan actually has plenty
1: of water, but Andrew Scanlon says three decades of war have disrupted the traditional method of allocating it. That's a job usually done by the lord of the water.
3: You have a
10: wonderful level of management at the village level uh, run by a, a guy called the Mir Ab, the lord of the water. Um, And this would be a guy in every village whose role has been passed on from his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather going back for hundreds, if not thousands, of years.
1: In the 1980s, Soviet occupiers centralized Afghanistan's water distribution system, undermining the lords of the water. What's needed today, says Scanlon, is a return to decentralized community management, especially in farmlands that depend on irrigation. Sixty percent of Afghans make their living from agriculture. It accounts for half the nation's GDP, not including the opium crop. But war has taken its toll. For example, in Kandahar, once the Taliban capital, Zahid Hamdard says fighting has
10: laid waste. Green valleys of red pomegranates.
11: The clearing of Kandahar district was uh, strategically important.
10: The clearing of the Kandahar district was strategically important, but it came at the cost of some of the pomegranate orchards, and those have definitely contributed to the bad environmental quality. And the same has happened in Helmand, which has been one of the agricultural producers of the country. It was damaged because of the stronger presence of the insurgents, or anti-government elements. The
1: Afghan government lacks the resources and reach to control much of the land. A powerful timber mafia has taken over much of the valuable forests. In 30 years, 60% of the deciduous trees have been cut down. Half of Afghanistan's pistachio trees, once so abundant, are gone. So too are almond and juniper trees, long term food sources sacrificed for fuel. Environmental advisor Gulam Malik Yar.
12: The
9: war has brought poverty. Poverty is one of the main sources of environmental degradation because people are forced to use different sources of energy. And the same with natural resources. They use it up for energy, for livelihood. The Pentagon spends about
1: $200 million a month to fuel the Afghan war. Zahid Hamdad says
10: now burnt hulks of oil tankers litter mountain passes. Wherever you travel on the highways, you see these oil tankers that have been set on fire. This can cause toxic pollution of natural habitats and wildlife from these fires set by insurgents. Afghanistan was once an important stop on the flyway for
1: migratory birds. But deforestation, drought, and 30 years of war have ruined wetlands. Today, it's estimated that the number of birds migrating over Afghanistan is down 85%. The fighting has also led to a mass migration of people from rural areas to cities. The population of Kabul has doubled in less than a decade. And today, air pollution in the capital kills more civilians a year... Than combat nationwide. Again, government official Zahid Hamdad.
6: More than
11: three thousand people die.
10: Three thousand people die from the air pollution in Kabul. It definitely is a concern, it definitely definitely is a concern right now. Right now, is that because people are
1: coming into Kabul to escape the fighting, and therefore they pollute the air more?
11: Partly that reason, but but also since uh, it's one of.
10: It's the partly that reason. But also since it's one of the main cities, it's an economic hub with lots of industrial and business activities. And also because of the strong presence of international organizations. For the past decade, the U.S.-led coalition has tried to create a civil society in Afghanistan.
1: And today the nation has tough environmental laws and standards, but enforcement is weak Still, Andrew Scanlon of the U.N. Environmental Programme is optimistic. For example, he says the new Green Club of Afghanistan has thousands of members.
10: There's light at the end of the tunnel. It's a pretty long tunnel. But I, I think I, one of the reasons I'm hopeful is because of the people that are, that are here on the ground.
13: They're so strong, they're so tough, and it's still an incredibly
7: beautiful, natural, uh, mountainous, alpine Himalayan place. Even
1: three decades of war can't change that. up riding the wave of the future, electricity washes up on shore. Stay tuned, it's Living on Earth.
9: Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, Gilman Ordway, for coverage of conservation and environmental change, and the Sierra Club, helping city-bound kids explore and enjoy wild places they'll later strive to protect. Online at sierraclub.org slash Earth. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm
1: Bruce Gellerman. I think that I shall never see an app that can ID a tree. But now I can. Poems are made by fools like me, but it took John Cress to develop a smartphone app to find the right tree. Cress is chief botanist at the Smithsonian Institution. He and some computer experts at Columbia University have created LeafSnap. Dr. Cress, welcome to Living on Earth.
13: Uh, it's great to be here and talking to you.
1: So leaf snap. Um, you take a picture with your, your uh, iPhone, and then what happens?
13: Then what happens took us about eight years to <laughs> develop. It then generates a, an image of it. We call it segments the leaf into kind of its basic shape. Then it sends that segmentation over the net up to the server at Columbia, where we've stored a giant library of other images of leaves. So it compares your leaf to all those images of leaves, gives you the best match, and then sends back the top choice. How, how big is your database? Right now we have about 200 species of trees, primarily from Central Park in New York City and Rock Creek Park here in Washington. That accounts for almost 10,000 different images that we have up on the server. We built a library for each species of any types of leaves that you'd find in the forest because we all know nature varies and no two leaves are alike, so we really wanted to represent each species by more than one leaf. And so for Magnolia Grandiflora, we may have 50 different leaf images in the library that your
1: image then gets compared to. So our producer Stephanie went out and got some leaves, and she picked them, and they're right here, and I'm going to take a picture with a borrowed iPhone. Saving the image. It's uploading the image over our wireless network. So I've got a uh, results here. Uh, I've got a bunch of results, actually. Mm-hmm. And it's got the picture that I took and kind of like, a, almost like an x-ray, it's a, a
13: silhouette. That's the segmentation of the leaf. It's it separated the leaf from its background, and it's separated out its shape there. So you, what you're seeing is just the shape of that leaf. There's no veins, there's no color, there's no nothing.
1: Well, there's the results that says London plane Tree or Red Maple or Sugar Maple. Now, there's a, a lot of different trees there. Yeah, but look at the
13: leaves. They're all somewhat similar. They all have that kind of serrated, jagged edge with maybe five or six main lobes on it. And that's the fascinating thing about nature. Nature has come up with the same sorts of shapes in many different ways in many different species. And our challenge was to separate those out there. And we focused on using the leaves because, one, they're two-dimensional. As soon as we move into the three-dimensional realm of a flower or fruit, the problem gets a lot harder. And, and two, there's a lot of information in those leaves if you look at this, not only the basic shape, but it's the lobes on the leaf, it's the little serrations or the smooth edges. All of that helps us identify uh, what species it is. I think I found it. It's striped maple. So I've got Acer pennsylvanicum here. Yep. If you were standing outside next to that tree, and you came up with identification, then you could compare the photo of the bark with the photo of the tree. You can, if there were any fruits hanging down, you can compare the photo of the fruits. And then you can really confirm your identification that way.
1: So now you've got Central Park and Rock Creek Park in D.C. mapped out here. Um, What's next?
13: Right as we speak, we have colleagues collecting images and data on all the trees of the northeastern United States. Because we're going to kind of expand this across the country, starting with the northeast, and then probably all the trees east of the Mississippi River, and then head west and we hope within a few years, if the funding is uh, available, we're going to be able to have a system that will work anywhere in North America.
1: Now, I can see a potential snafu to Snap, though, you know? I mean, you're out there in the great outdoors, and, and you're hiking in the middle of nowhere, and you don't have 3G or wireless access.
13: Yeah, that is a problem. Uh, but I think that's probably going to change as time goes on. I just came back from eastern Africa, and even there, out near the Serengeti, I had access to some sort of communication. So I don't have an iPhone. Um,
1: I got an Android phone. You got an app for that?
13: We're working on an Android version of Snap right now. We hope probably by the end of the summer, early fall, you'll also be able to put this on your Android phones. And it's a freebie app, right? It's free. We had long discussions about that, too. But this project was supported in part by the National Science Foundation, who gave us the original grant to put it together. But we felt that this application that we really hope brings people closer to nature and closer to understanding nature would be much better to to be a free app than any sort of uh, cost to it.
1: It also broaden horizons. You could turn, you know, kind of the casual person into a citizen scientist, actually. That's just what we hope, Bruce. That's just
13: what we're aiming for. In fact, we've already, since the release of of LeafSnap. We've already had a lot of inquiries from school teachers, from high school teachers, from even college professors that really see how LeafSnap can be adapted and become part of their curriculum, whether it's five-year-olds or whether it's 25-year-olds. And that's really what we're shooting for.
1: Well, Dr. Kress, that was a lot of fun. Thank you very much. I really
13: enjoyed it. My pleasure, and I hope everybody else uh, enjoys using LeafSnap.
1: John Kress is chief botanist at the Smithsonian Institution and helped develop the new LeafSnap app. For more details, check out our website, loe.org. In the quest for clean energy, scientists look to the power of the wind, the sun, the deep earth, and even the moon. or More specifically, the moon's gravitational pull on our oceans. The motion of the rise and fall of the tides carries enormous potential energy to the coast twice a day like clockwork. However, harnessing that power has long proved problematic. Many have failed. But Living on Earth, Jeff Young visited some energy entrepreneurs who think they can turn the tide on tidal electricity. The barge-like
14: craft moored to a dock in Portland, Maine, looks like some modern version of a stern-wheel paddleboat. Hydraulic arms hold a massive cylinder of blades, ready to go in the water. But this boat isn't built for speed. It's built for power, tidal power. It's the creation of Chris Sauer and his Ocean Renewable Power Company.
12: This is our baby. This is uh, the Energy Tide 2. This is the largest ocean energy device ever deployed in U.S. waters. Let's have a look. Come aboard.
14: The Energy Tide II is normally anchored near Eastport in an arm of the Bay of Fundy called Cobbscook Bay. Sauer towed it to Portland for a national convention on ocean energy. He shows me to the boat's business end, the high-tech composite blades curved inside a turbine generator unit, or TGU.
12: When it's fully deployed... It's directly under this axle right here.
9: Mm-hmm.
12: And it's about 15 feet from the water, top of the water to the top of the TGU. And then it's locked into position. And it just sits there. And as the tidal currents come, it starts to generate electricity. And then, of course, the tide reverses and comes the other way and does the same thing. On an average basis, we're generating about 18 to 20 hours a day.
14: A small cabin crowded with electronics and monitors converts the power and keeps track of what's happening underwater. The unit can generate 60 kilowatts of power, and that's been going to a Coast Guard station, the country's first federal facility to use tidal power. But primarily, this is a research project. Sauer says in a year of operation, it's shown virtually no impact to fish or other marine life. And it's proved that the tides can predictably generate power that could be plugged into the grid. Now, Sauer wants to scale up.
12: The next step is our uh, turbine generator unit uh, is going to be uh, get a little bigger. Uh, instead of two turbines, it's going to have four turbines. It's going to be about twice as long, but it's going to put out three times the power. So instead of a design capacity of 60 kilowatts, it will be 180 kilowatts. And uh, we hope to get that in the water and connected to the grid by the end of the year. That's our plan.
14: Sauer says the project has also proved tidal power can generate jobs. The company's provided jobs for 100 people in Maine, people like Daryl Speed, who had been
3: laid off. Honestly, I was at the, the stage where I was going to have to look to go outside of Maine. I mean, I was born and raised here. want to stay here. But, uh, you know, it was coming down to that.
14: That's when Speed saw an ad for Ocean Renewable Power. He had no idea what it was about.
3: Well, quite frankly, I, don't, I didn't care at the time. I needed a job. Like I said before, I wanted to stay in Maine. And, but since I've gotten here, this company is, you know, it is a company about creating jobs, but it's also a company about creating a sustainable energy uh, resource for the United States, uh, and it's renewable. The tides go and ebb and flood every day. You can set your watch by it. No, will we be 100% will we be able to replace all of our energy resources? No, but we're part of the answer, a big part of the answer. At least three other companies
14: are trying to harness the tides in these waters using similar technology. On the Canadian side of the bay, Mark Savory is vice president for Nova Scotia Power, the provincial utility. He hired an Irish company called Open Hydro to supply a tide turbine that looks like the front of a jet engine. The blades are inside a disc housing the magnets of the generator. Savory's crew moored it to the bay's floor in 2009, then pulled it up a year later to an unpleasant surprise.
3: So we lost the blades off it. It was like we just
13: purely overloaded it. So other than the fact that there's no blades on it, it looks almost like the day we put it in.
14: (laughs) So just stripped out the the blades. I I imagine you're reporting back to your your boss and saying, get some good news and some bad news here. (laughs) That
13: was exactly my story last year. I have good news and I have bad news. (laughs) Bad news is no blades. Good news is, boy, there's a lot of energy there. (laughs) A lot more than we would have thought.
14: Savory's not giving up. Nova Scotia Power estimates it might be able to get two gigawatts of electricity from the tides, about 15 percent of the province's annual power consumption. Other areas like Cook's Inlet in Alaska and the Pacific Northwest Coast have potential. Even New York's East River has a tidal power test underway. But just how much can we harness from such harsh environments? That's what Dr. Robert Thresher is trying to figure out. Thresher is a research fellow at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in Colorado. He's worked with wind power since its early development in the 1970s. Now he's researching tidal power and finds the two are really quite similar.
11: They absolutely are. uh, A lot of the basic understanding and engineering fundamentals uh, with which you use to design a good wind turbine, you would use exactly those same principles to design a a tidal turbine. Uh, Tidal power is, if you want to think of it that way, it's just a different fluid.
14: Wind power took about 35 years to go from prototypes to commercially viable power. But Dr. Thresher says tide power could develop much faster.
11: In my opinion, the tidal power stands on the shoulders of wind power. I predict that uh, we'll start to see some uh, tidal power on the grid within Uh, two or three years and that it'll grow over the next five to ten years to become uh, basically a practical technology.
14: Thresher's rough guess is that tidal power and other forms of ocean energy could eventually provide five to ten percent of U.S. electricity demand. But that will largely depend on how much the government is willing to do to help make it happen. One reason Europe is far ahead in tidal power development is because many EU policies encourage clean energy. Will the U.S. government do the same? Some lessons lie in the history of the Bay of Fundy. People have been trying tidal projects here without success for nearly 80 years. But they keep coming back for some reason.
8: Easy answer, it's the world's highest
14: tides in the Bay of Fundy. That's Maine writer and regional historian Colin Woodard, who describes the phenomenal power of Fundy's tides, which can rise up to 50 feet.
8: It looks like a reversing river flowing, and the entire ocean is moving rapidly before your eyes. When the tides are moving, there's the largest whirlpool in the Western Hemisphere forms. As the tides collide, it's large enough to pull a small boat down. It's a very dramatic thing to look at. So the amount of energy involved is absolutely enormous, which, of course, makes it attractive to those uh, wishing to generate electricity from tides. The the original plan was cooked up by a a fellow named Dexter Cooper, who was a hydroelectric engineer who had a summer place on the bay.
14: Cooper's plan is portrayed in this 1936 March of Time newsreel.
11: Why not reason Cooper harness this tide, bottle it up, and send it through turbines to generate cheap electricity?
8: So that's where the idea first came from. And by happenstance, uh, his next-door neighbor was the future president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, which facilitated later on the uh, project being taken up by the federal government. Roosevelt approved $10 million
14: to start a series of dams on the Passamaquoddy Bay. But critics in Congress balked
8: at the project's price. This appeared to be a gigantic boondoggle in that it was going to cost a lot of money. So uh, that economic argument ultimately was winning the day in Washington. And within a year or two, it was pretty much unplugged by skeptics in Washington.
11: Relics of a great boom lie scattered drearily about. For here, the federal government started to spend many millions of dollars to build a gigantic power dam. Started and then suddenly stopped.
14: That history lends a sense of deja vu to the current tidal power projects. In 2005, the U.S. Department of Energy started a small ocean energy program called Marine Hydrokinetics, which has put about $100 million into research and matching grants to support tide and wave energy. Tidal power developer Chris Sauer says that DOE program is crucial, but the austere budget environment in Washington could put it on the chopping block.
12: This is a very minor amount of money. It's a drop in the bucket compared to what is given to the oil and gas and coal and nuclear industries. Uh, But it's critical for us at this point. Uh, That funding is unfortunately drying up just at a time when we need it the most. Support for tidal energy seems to rise and fall
14: like, well, the tides themselves. Developers like Sauer are hoping that this time interest won't ebb too soon. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Portland, Maine.
1: Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Balinski, Helen Palmer, Jessica Lee Smith, Aitrish Kondaraja, and Mitra Taj. With help from Sarah Corkins, Gabriella Romano, and Sammy Souza. Our interns are Daniel Gross, Stephanie McPherson, and Anne-Marie Singh. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lyrish-Dean composed our themes. And don't forget our sister program, Planet Harmony, which pays special attention to stories affecting communities of color. Log on and join the discussion at myplanetharmony.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at LivingOnEarth. That's one word. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer.
9: I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield invites you to Just Eat Organic for a Day. Details at JustEatOrganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making.